Can we be real for, uh, for just a minute here? Um, how many of you have ever given a, a, a nice gift to somebody and then had that person uh, just not give any response at all? Has anyone experienced that before? I've experienced that before. I mean, no note, no call, not even like a, a nod or a smile the next time you bump into them. It's the best, isn't it? <laughs> it's so nice. It kind of makes you wonder, did they ever receive your gift to begin with? I had that actually happen to me. I sent a, a care package to a friend who was deployed in the Middle East and, and never heard anything back. It turns out he never got it. Okay. Or maybe they didn't, they didn't like your gift, right? It was, just, it was just so repulsive to them that they couldn't bring themselves to even appreciate the gesture that you gave them a gift. Or maybe they're just so utterly warped in the head that they think themselves entitled to receive such gifts. And they're like a spoiled child that's come to develop some type of narcissistic expectation. Of course, you gave me a gift. Why wouldn't you? Why don't you give me more? Or maybe they're just not, they're just not around anymore. You need to go over their place right now, and you need to give a knock on their door, and you need to see if they're even alive. And if they do answer the door, maybe you need to break out that defibrillator just to shock some sense into them, right? No response. Incredible. Are you kidding me? It's shocking. It's disturbing. It kind of makes you sorry you ever gave a gift in the first place and probably makes you think twice before giving a gift again. We're disgusted by the ingratitude of others, aren't we? It is disgusting. And we tell ourselves that we would never do anything like that to anyone. Right. Here in our study of 1 Peter, we've been exploring the amazing things that God has done for those who have placed their trust in him and in his son Jesus. In his great mercy, God has, has chosen them. He, he's called them out of darkness and brought them into the light. He's caused them to be reborn to a living hope. They now have an inheritance that, that won't spoil. It, it won't go bad. It can't, be war, it, it can't wear out. It can't be taken away. It's, it's a fortified inheritance, right? And they've been given evidence that their faith is the, the real deal as it endures this kind of fire testing, as they go through troubles and trials and challenges, well, they, they, get, they, they receive evidence that maybe our faith is the real deal. They have a promised future glory. They have fellowship with Christ. And they're even now experiencing some of the fruit of their salvation right here, right now. This is not a gift card to Starbucks. This is not a, a box of chocolates and some flowers. This is some big stuff here. In fact, over the last few weeks, I think it's become clear to us that this is the greatest stuff. Nothing else really compares, does it? And so now Peter tells them, you need to respond. There needs to be some sort of response. You, you, you can't not respond in, in light of the joy that now pervades every facet of your life there must be a change 
There must be some sort of difference in, in the way that you now live out your life. And if there's not, well, you got to wonder, are you even alive? Do you even know Christ at all? Let's look at what, first, uh, what Peter has to write here. In 1 Peter chapter 1 this morning, 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to read from verses 13 to 17. And would you stand with me as we read from this gift that God has given us in his revealed word? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you should be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. We'll land there this morning. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. The question that I want to ask is, how should people chosen by God respond to the incredible thing that he has done for them? How should they respond? How should we, how should you respond to God's goodness? First, first of all, what we see here is respond by dialing in your hope. Dial in your hope. Peter writes, therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, prepare your minds for action. The literal translation of this phrase is, gird up the loins of your mind. Okay? So, to gird up the, your, your loins was an ancient practice of gathering up your robe. And so when a soldier was preparing to go into a fight, preparing to go out to battle, he had this long robe, and he would have to kind of tuck it up and tuck it into his belt so that his legs were free to move quickly, to maneuver. He had to be able to run. He had to be able to twist and turn, to bob and weave things he couldn't do with all of this fabric hanging out around his leg. And so Peter is telling people who place their trust in Jesus to respond by preparing to work. Prepare to go out there. Christ didn't save you so that you could just plop down in the inner tube and float around in the lazy river, right? No, this is a race. This is a fight. This is a battle. There are dangers out there. There are enemies out there. There are all kinds of things, all kinds of ideas that threaten this new life for God's chosen people. And for these Christians, the threats, well, they were pretty obvious, being a Christian in the first century was not the most popular thing to be. They were hated for it. The Jews looked at them as heretics. They were a, a poison to be extracted. The rest of the Roman world, they, look at, they looked at them as separatists, unwilling to recognize the divinity of Caesar or to come alongside them and worship all of the gods, the pantheon of gods that they worshipped. 
And so these Christians were facing persecution for what they believed. They were living on the run. In a sense, they were, they were refugees of sorts, people without a country. And at, all the while, being reminded by Peter that even though they were scattered all around, they had this, this living hope and an inheritance that would never be taken away. The, the threat to these Christians was, in some cases, discouragement. It was disillusionment. It was the temptation to blend in with the rest of the crowd so as to kind of fly in under the radar and avoid being picked on, singled out. We don't want to be known for our odd, strange beliefs. That was a temptation. What about the allure of going back to the, the old way of doing things, of satisfying the cravings of their bodies in ways that were outside of God's design? I used to do this, and I really, really enjoyed, oh, it'd be nice to be able to do that again. Or maybe it was, maybe it'd be easier just to give up, <laughs> you know, to throw in the towel and pretend like this whole thing was just some sort of phase, like uh, bell, bell bottoms or, or, or black fingernails or uh, country music, <laughs> if only. Peter's telling them that they need to get rid of some things. They need to get rid of all those things that the world is trying to get them all tied up into thinking and worrying about and focus their attention on the good things that Christ has stored up for them. He writes they need to be sober-minded. You know, alcohol and drugs are not the only things that intoxicate, are they? To be intoxicated, to be under the influence of something. There's something that you've allowed into your life that is inhibiting your ability, ability to think or to do things in, in the ways that you would normally think or, or, or do them. And what are some things that can intoxicate us? What about worry and fear? Those are intoxicants, aren't they? Worry and fear... We get caught up in our anxieties about this or about that, our ability to think clearly, and, and sometimes even our ability to do basic things in life are crippled because of worry and fear have taken us captive. Worry, fear. What about ambition? Can't ambition be an intoxicant? We can become so consumed with achieving this, gaining that, that we completely lose sight of, of what God wants us to be pursuing. And we're not seeking after God. We're not trusting him to add everything that we need into our lives. Instead, we're seeking first anything and everything that we think we need or think that we want. And we're finding we have no room left for the kingdom of God. Worry, fear, ambition, what about pleasure? That can be a form of intoxication, can't it? The pursuit of the next trip 
or, or the next experience, the, the next tantalizing meal, <laughs> the next what, whatever thing that's going to make us feel the way that we wish we could feel. We find ourselves comp- compelled to avoid even the slightest discomfort, even if God has called us to that very thing, right? And we're enslaved to spending whatever it costs to get whatever we think is going to make us happy. How many marriages have been sacrificed in pursuit of pleasure? How many young people have locked themselves into a a sort of mindset of just trying to get more and more and more at the expense of of missing out on, on a life of storing up eternal treasure? In service to Christ. How many junior high and high school students have made life-altering, future-damaging decisions for the sake of the promise of pleasure in the the right here and the right now? How many couples have enslaved themselves to debt, stripped themselves of the freedom to use their finances to maybe meet the needs of others or maybe go on that mission trip or maybe contribute to the furthering of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Pleasure can be an intoxicant. But what about anger? What about hate? James Mason said it to the professor as Captain Nemo in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. What you fail to understand is that the power of hate, it can fill the heart as surely as love can. Anger and hate are intoxicants. We think that we're more in control as we let them loose. But in reality, they've taken control of us. They make us feel like we're some type of of God. When in reality, they, they pull us further and further away from the very people that God designed us to be. They pollute our thinking. They poison our conversations. They cause us to make really, really, really destructive decisions. And we could go on and on and on, couldn't we? There are all kinds of intoxicants out there. It's so easy to allow ourselves to become intoxicated. (laughs) That's what we were before Christ. But Peter tells us, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, hope isn't merely a feeling. <laughs> it's it's, an, it's an, a sort of action. It's an intentionality. It's an act of the will. Set your hope, he writes. Fix your thoughts. Discipline your mind in such a way that it's centered. How centered? Fully centered on what is coming. I was speaking with one of our missionaries just uh, this past week. Uh, in a, uh, about the stuff that is going on in Ukraine. We're talking about that crisis. We're talking about his family and how close they are to the border there and, and what, what might happen. You know, this, 
this, this, this Russian leader, what's going to happen if, if he just decides to let loose some nuclear weapons, maybe on some of these nearby countries that are, that are offering some aid to Ukraine, and, and what would that mean for his family? This is serious stuff. He's feeling that weight. And we're feeling it, in a way, on the other side of the world. We're feeling that burden of all of this. And yet here we are, a people who have been given a living hope. One that death and destruction cannot touch. When the going gets tough, when the, when the dangers are many and the tensions rise and, and the days ahead are uncertain, that's when we need minds that are trained on hope that is certain. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What's the basis for that, that hope? People can hope in anything, can't they? Well, the basis for this hope is the grace given to us by a God who has proved himself faithful time and time and time again. Psalm 146 says it. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. And God said in, in Psalm 89, I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Psalm 133. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Have you dialed in your hope? Have you, you zeroed it in and focused it on what God has promised you and the inheritance that is it's now yours, not fully realized yet, it, it's coming, but it's, it's, it's there even right now, Peter has told us, is your hope zeroed in on the things, on all of the things that, that come with being one of God's children? Is that where your hope is? And if we don't respond to God's goodness in this way, do, do we not know him at all? Maybe we do, but perhaps not as we, we ought. Yeah, maybe there's a heartbeat, <laughs> but little other signs of life. 
And what about this? How can we sing the songs that we sing and say the, that we, we worship and love God with all that we got and not trust in the promises that he's made? <laughs> the hope and worship, they're, they're closely tied together, are they not? As we dial in our hope on the future that we have in Jesus Christ, we live out an act of worship, don't we? What's more, when, 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 when people look at us in the midst of, of trial, in the midst of crisis, and they see our hope fixed in God, isn't their attention drawn to the goodness and faithfulness of the God in whom we trust? God gets glory when we choose to set our hope in him. Titus 2.13 says that the grace of God is what makes us into people who are waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Real Christians, they, they respond to God's goodness by dialing in, consciously, intentionally dialing in their hope. It's a, it's a sort of discipline. Set your hope fully he says. They dial in their hope. They also cultivate holiness. They, they, they prepare themselves. They train themselves, build up their strength and endurance levels so that they might be clean and set apart for God's purposes. Peter writes it in verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. There was a way that we used to live. There was a way, back when we were ignorant, back when we didn't have the hope that Christ had given us. We were wandering, we were stumbling around in the dark, as Paul describes it. We were chasing after this or that, gravitating to whatever felt good, tasted good, made life seem easy, path of least resistance, fastest way to make a buck, surest way to get mine, to protect mine, to keep mine. And that's when Paul says we were living like the sons of disobedience. He writes that we were all living in the passions of our, of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the, of the body and the mind. But for those who have placed their trust in Jesus, that's not them anymore. They're no longer the sons and daughters of disobedience. They are now, as Peter says, obedient children. John says that those who have received Christ, who have trusted in him, have become sons and daughters of God. He writes in John uh, 1, verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You and I have physical parents, don't we? Even if we don't know them, even if we never met them, we have physical parents, a physical mother, a physical father. But those who trust in Christ have a spiritual father who has given them life, 
God is that father. And just like you and I have passed down genetic characteristics that have been passed down from our parents, so also there are character qualities of God that you and I are now to exhibit. Peter says, you are to be holy. You're to be holy. Just as the one who called you is holy, you were called to be holy. When God called the children of Israel to be holy, it was a call, it was a call back to himself. <laughs> it was a call to, to separate from the way of life that they had lived apart from him and now love and serve him and, and, and him alone. Just like when a, a man and a woman become husband and wife, they pledge themselves, don't they? They pledge themselves to be set apart from everyone else. That's what we're saying here up on the stage as we hold hands and look into each other's eyes. I pledge myself that everyone else is off limits. It's just you and me, baby, right? This is it. This is it. We're set apart in the same way God wants you to be set apart just for him. Paul gives us a picture of what that looks like in uh, 2 Timothy 2. A picture. He writes, Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. That, that's what we're talking about here. God desires his people to be set apart from, from the filthy things that contaminate them, that make them unfit for his service. They're to be holy. This is one of the ways that Christians respond to God's goodness. Jesus said it in John 14, 15. If you love me, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. When you love someone, you want to please that person, don't you? At least at first, right? <laughs> you want to please them. It's the natural outpouring of your love. And in the same way, Christians respond to God's love, and they express their love for him by striving for holiness. When you come to realize that this, this living hope that you've been reborn to experience is yours. Living hope, that is yours. The inheritance is yours. Future glory, that's yours. A relationship with Jesus Christ right here, right now. Fellowship with, with him is yours right now. When you, when you realize that, you begin to pray like a man named Ambrose prayed back, way back in the 300s. He prayed, oh Lord, you have mercy upon all, God's goodness. Take away from me my sins. Mercifully kindle in me the fire of your Holy Spirit. Take away from me the heart of stone. Give me a heart of flesh, a heart to love and adore you, a heart to delight in you, to follow and enjoy you for Christ's sake. 
Amen. How do you respond to, respond to God's goodness? Well, you, you dial in your hope. You set it fully on him. You cultivate holiness. Finally, you honor God even in the hard times. You live out your life in light of the fact that the God who called you deserves to be honored. Verse 17. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. It's easy to feel like that entitled kid, right? The one who says, I, I deserved all this. Mom, dad, you're supposed to give me all these things. It's easy to feel that way. And part of feeling entitled can sometimes lead us to think that when life doesn't go the way that we want it to go, life's getting kind of hard right now. And we think, well, then, well, then I can just ignore this so-called God. I, I'm entitled to, aren't I? I mean, he's not coming through for me right now. Things are getting pretty tough here, and I deserve to slack off a little bit. I deserve to, to pop off at my parents. I deserve to uh, be a little short with my spouse or with my coworkers because of all the stress I'm under. If they only realized how much stress I was under, they'd say, oh, yeah, yell at me all you want. <laughs> I deserve to be a, a little loose with my language. Maybe you spout off a couple four-letter words here and there. Don't I deserve it? I'm under stress here. I've earned the right to be not so into this whole worship thing. Uh, you know, my body is here. I'll come to church, but I'm not you know, really into it today. I've had a hard week. I deserve a little compromise in my life. You know, I, I really just need a vacation. I, I, I think I need a vacation from this Christian stuff for a little while. <laughs> I'm entitled to bend to the truth or to fudge those numbers, or I can be a little less faithful to my spouse, or a little less faithful to my commitments. I, 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 can, I can go steal that, that car. I can go kick that puppy, right? Now that goes into youth pastor mode. We don't want to do that. We become, we become entitled, and we think that we have an excuse to do things that we know we shouldn't do. To that to the point that Peter's trying to make here is we need to remember who it is that called us. Remember who it is. This is God Almighty. This is the one who in the end will righteously judge everyone. That is his right. That is what he will do. No evil escapes his gaze and no one will escape his judgment apart from being covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Why? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And so Peter says, conduct yourselves with, with fear. Even throughout your time of exile, Christians, in response to God's goodness, our lives should not be marked by, by sticking up for our rights. 
and not be marked by sucking the marrow out of all life's pleasures. That should not mark our lives. It should not be striving to make a name for ourselves. It should, be, it should not be about our devotion to this political party or that political party or by making sure that everyone understands that we know our stuff. No. Our lives should be marked, first and foremost, by reverence for this God. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. People chosen by this good, gracious, faithful God who've been reborn to a living hope given this, this invincible inheritance, have a personal relationship with Christ and have a future glory to look forward to. They respond by living out lives in respect and honor to the one who called them even in their darkest hours. Is your life marked by reverence God. No response. If people look at us and cannot detect any difference in the way that we think and in the way that we talk and in the way that we hope against all hope, the way that we live our lives with a sense of, of reverence and intentionality and purpose, then we're not responding to, to God the way we should. Perhaps we don't actually know him. Could it be? Or maybe we don't know him as we ought. Henry Thornton was a man who, who, who got this. He knew that the goodness of God deserved a response. He was an English economist. He was a banker. He was a philanthropist. He was a parliamentarian. As a close friend and cousin to William Wilberforce, he was also an abolitionist and a church reformer. He was a man who had been reborn to a living hope. He was, he was a Christian. And at some point along his journey, he penned this prayer. We bless you for your preservation of us during the past night. And we desire to acknowledge again our dependence upon you and our unfeigned, that is, genuine obligations toward you. We thank you for having poured down upon us so many blessings of this life. We thank you for our health and strength, for our food and dress, and for all the comforts and conveniences which we enjoy. But above all, we praise you for the inestimable privilege of being born in a land of religious light and knowledge. For these and all your various and great mercies, we would render unto you a grateful heart and we would endeavor to show gratitude, not with our lips only, 
but with our lives by giving up ourselves to your service and walking before you in holiness and righteousness all our days on earth. Amen. Have you experienced God's goodness? If you haven't, come to 1 Peter 1 once again. Have you come to know his grace and his faithfulness? Have you come to believe that Jesus Christ it was, he's the undeserved gift that was given so that your sins might be forgiven and you might inherit eternity. If that is you, then may your life be lived out in response to God's goodness. Dial in your hope. Cultivate holiness. And honor God, even in the hard times. Let's pray. Lord, Psalm 75 says we give thanks to you. Oh God, we give thanks to you for your name is near and we recount your wondrous deeds. Yes, Lord, we do. If we were to list off, start just spouting off all of the good things that you have done for us, Lord, we, we wouldn't leave here. We'd be here all week. You're the good father of lights from whom every good and perfect gift comes. Lord, may we not live as those who take for granted the gifts that have been given us, but may we walk in joy and gratitude that, that comes from realizing what it is that we've been given in Christ. Lord, may we set our hope fully on the grace that is coming. May we turn from those old, pathetic ways that we used to try to satisfy our, our cravings and our desires. Lord, may we live lives that are marked by reverence for you, knowing that you are our Father. And if, you, Lord, you've bestowed upon us a sacred calling, May we live our lives for your glory, we pray in Christ's name.